So the year before the pandemic, that's how we refer to it now, right? The year before the pandemic, uh, I went to Hong Kong to visit one of our missionaries. And, of course, everything was foreign to me. And, I mean, all the signs, everything. And I was looking for any clue that would help me figure things out. And so I was quite happy to see that some of the signs uh, had not only Chinese characters, but had some English characters underneath that give you a clue. So um, there was one sign in particular that I was happy to see. And uh, we were going down some stairs. And you, perhaps you've been in a situation like this. Go down some stairs. And there's this little sign above the stairs that you would expect to say, watch your head. Okay? But it didn't say watch your head because it was translated from Chinese. It said instead, mind your head. Now that is some good advice. Mind your head. That's much better advice than watching your head. I mean, you watch your head if you look in the mirror, but that's the only time. Minding your head, on the other hand, is something that we can do all of the time. We can pay attention to the things that have our attention. We can look for uh, our attitude. We can check our um, thoughts and make sure that what is in our head is what's supposed to be in our head. We can mind our head. And I bring that up this morning because that really is what Jesus challenges Peter about. Peter has a problem with his mindset, you might say. Peter has a problem with his head. And so Jesus calls him on it in quite a dramatic way. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'll begin reading in verse 21, but while you're turning there, I want to remind you that this text comes right on the heels of the clearest and most important statement about the identity of Jesus that we have heard in the entire Gospels. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that was a great statement about the identity of Jesus. One would expect a student that could, that could give that kind of an answer on an exam would be all set. Uh, but we'll see otherwise here in just a second. Um, Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So right on the heels of this great confession, Peter 
makes this great debacle. The right confession does not create the right concerns. You can say the right things with your mouth and value the wrong things with your heart. It's all too easy to be able to say the right thing but still deep down believe the wrong thing. But Jesus was insistent, even in, the, in his interaction with Peter, that the kingdom comes through suffering and death and resurrection. And even though Peter wanted a shortcut, Jesus insisted that there was no shortcut. And so look at verse 21. This is where Jesus makes this abundantly clear. From that time, and again, even just that little intro from that time points us in a different direction in the book of Matthew. There is a change beginning right here that will change the trajectory of the life of Jesus and his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, we've been reading and studying the book of Matthew, and I hope that, that you have had um, uh, some vivid experiences as you have watched Jesus do some amazing things. It is as though we go, uh, we're watching a highlight reel of Jesus go from place to place, and people, uh, he'll heal people just by telling them uh, from a distance they're healed. He'll heal people by walking up and they'll touch his garment. He'll heal people by, you know, really healing the whole uh, town. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000 and 4,000. I mean, he's got it going on. And, and we too, like the disciples, are excited to hang out with Jesus. Jesus is just building layer on layer. This is what I'm doing in the world. Until Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that point, the disciples think they've got it, but they don't quite have it. They need just a little more clarity. And so Jesus then, uh, I love the language, began to show. Before he may have been telling, now he's showing. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And it, this indicates that this was the, the beginning uh, of his telling them. He's going to tell them over and over and over and over that the values of the kingdom are different than your values. He began to tell them that he was on his way to Jerusalem to be killed. So that's, I think, important. It says... And if you have the ESV Bible, it says, he must go. He must go. Now, there are things you must do that you don't want to do. There are things that you must do that you wouldn't do unless someone else made you do them. I must pay my taxes. Okay, I, I don't want to pay my taxes. I might be able to get out of paying my taxes and no one would catch me. But that's different than what's happening here. I think a better translation, in fact, must is just a little weak for my taste. 
the simplest and most direct translation of this would be Jesus began to show that it is necessary. It is necessary to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and to be killed. Now, if something's necessary, that means that it is essential and cannot be done without. It must be part of the plan. There is no exception. And so Jesus wants to communicate very clearly that it is necessary, not optional, that he go suffer and die and rise again according to the plan of God. Which means that all of the good news that you believe, everything that you hope for, essentially depends on the suffering of Jesus. There is no plan B. The pl there is only plan A, and it includes suffering, death, and resurrection. They said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, there is no other way for the kingdom to come. There is no other way to redeem broken and sinful people other than to suffer and die and rise again. When Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem, he is setting the course for the next few days for sure. But you'll see next week when we look at those next verses, he's setting the course for the nature of Christianity. Suffering and a cross and a resurrection. And so when Jesus talks, then he says, I'm going to go suffer uh, many things at the hands of the, the priests and the Pharisees and the leaders and die. And then on the third day rise. And it just sort of throws that out there. On the third day, he's going to rise. Now, for us, we assume that because we've known the Easter story. We see it coming in a couple weeks. There's going to be Good Friday. There's going to be Sunday. And, but Jesus, this hasn't happened yet in this text. Jesus is really reminding them of what he had said in chapter 12 about the, the sign of Jonah. You're only going to get one chance to understand the Messiah. One sign, and that sign will be the sign of Jonah. He's going to be in the belly of, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The son of man's going to be in the belly of the earth. Same thing. So three days, rise again. He's reminding us, this is what you're going to see. Now, the funny thing is, he said it, he said it again here at least the second time. The disciples completely miss it, don't they? I mean, they're there, they're, I don't know, praying, having breakfast. I don't know what disciples do when they don't think Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But some women come back from the tomb and say, listen, it's empty. And they forget about it. Jesus' enemies didn't forget. They remember, they said, can we have uh, some soldiers here? Because his, Jesus kept saying, three days he's going to rise again. We need to do something about that. 
But these disciples, they didn't get it, even though Jesus was completely explicit about it. But the main thing to see in verse 21 is that Jesus is nothing if not clear. He must suffer, he must die, he must rise again, and there is no other way to bring the kingdom of heaven. There is no other way to save sinners. There is no other way. But that doesn't stop Peter from wanting one, does it? Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. One of the more interesting clues here, if you look at verse 22, it says, Peter began to rebuke him. It's exactly the same language that we had in verse 21. Jesus began to show. And, you you know, you could probably tell the story without the begins on either verse. But but because Jesus began to show and Peter began to rebuke, we, we are tipped off that, in fact, Peter has a different vision for the future than Jesus has. We are tipped off that, in fact, Peter sees the future differently than Jesus sees the future. Now, I think that it's very possible that if push came to shove, we might see the future differently than Jesus sees it too. Now, Peter understood something different about the Messiah, the word Messiah, the idea of Messiah, than Jesus understood. He meant something different. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, yet his vision of this Messiah, the Son of God, did not include the cross. This may have been the reason that he was told in verse 20, don't say anything about this, because you don't really get it. But this is an important clue, I think, for all of us. Because people can say the word Jesus, the name Jesus, they can say the Christ, they can say the Son of God, yet mean something very different by those labels than Jesus intends. I mean, you know this to be true. I mean, you might be able to pick out the differences between Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and historic Christianity. They have a different version of Jesus, and they're very public about it. And I don't think, Je- I don't think Peter would share their vision of Jesus, but he had his own. And his own vision of Jesus is probably a lot more like your vision of Jesus, I would expect. Peter wanted Jesus to win. We're followers of Jesus. We're winners. He understood that Jesus and those that Jesus leads are supposed to avoid suffering. You know anybody that would like that? That sounds good to me. That's what Peter thought. 
In other words, Peter had a version of a Messiah that did not align with Jesus' vision for the Messiah. Now, I think it's worth slowing down for a second and just sort of thinking this through. Why might Peter have had this different vision than Jesus had? Why might Peter confront Jesus about his plan? I think there are probably three or four, maybe uh, other reasons. But it could be that Peter had a political view or a political vision for the Messiah. It could be that Peter had a personal interest in the Messiah, that he actually loved Jesus. It could be that he had a pragmatic vision for what the Messiah ought to do. I hope that as we talk about the kingdom of heaven, you're coming to grips with the fact that to call Jesus king is a political statement. A political statement that, Je- that Caesar is not king. To make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah is to make a political claim. And so Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And all of a sudden, the disciples are embroiled in politics, whether they wanted to be or not. And it probably warrants me reminding you that if you claim allegiance to Jesus as your king, you too are making a political statement when you say that. And you are embroiled in politics, whether you want to be or not. See, the popular view of the Messiah at the time, when when Peter was there, was that he would be a conquering hero. That he would come in, ride in on a white horse, overthrow Rome, and restore the kingdom to Israel. And so it's likely that Peter, having just affirmed that Jesus is that guy, wanted Jesus to be the one who would undo the Roman rule. And so Peter could have had political motives for saying, nope, Won't ever happen to you. Can't happen to you. That'd ruin everything. Or Peter could have objected to Jesus suffering, dying, and rising on personal grounds. To say, Jesus, I love you. I don't want you to die. That's possible. I mean, think about it. Jesus, I love you. Is that a good motive or a bad motive? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doesn't really matter, though, does it, what the motive is, because he's crosswise with Jesus. How many times do we let our emotional conditions dictate what we want from Jesus or what we want for Jesus? Could be Peter objected to Jesus going to the cross because he was simply pragmatic. He, he just wanted to be practical. Jesus, 
Really? You're, if you don't go to Jerusalem, you won't die. Everything will keep going like it is. It'll be good. After all, a dead Messiah won't do anyone any good now, will it, Jesus? We have to have, we have, to have a conversation about this. You are doing it wrong. This is not completely different from that first view, that a dead Messiah is not going to do anyone any good. But I pulled it apart and separated it as a second or a third motivation because it mirrors a different temptation, I think, for us. I mean, how many of us are pragmatists? How many of us want to think of things in practical terms or in terms of technique or procedures or systems or just making something good happen, right? For instance, you want people to come to church. That might be good. You people to come to church. So the people we know should come to church, they they sometimes go to concerts. We should make church like a concert. Then people would come. And they listen to TED Talks. Maybe we should make the sermon like a TED Talk. And so if there's a concert and a TED Talk, people would come. Maybe. Or maybe we shouldn't do life groups. Because there, people get in these small groups and they get in each other's business. And people don't like it when other people get in their business. So maybe we should, should skip that and do something more exciting. See, all of these things, and there's hundreds more. I just picked some easy ones. They're all shortcuts, aren't they? All uh, you know, man-made techniques that shortcut the suffering of Jesus in the cross. They essentially do not require Jesus to suffer, die, and rise again. If we can, by our technique, make it happen. Very tempting to do that. The American church has been co-opted by that for decades now, really. In short, here in verse 22, Peter articulates what every disciple of Jesus has thought at one point or the other. And that's this. There must be an easier way. There must be an easier way. There must be a way that avoids the cross. There must be a way that avoids the suffering. And so Jesus, or excuse me, Peter says the quiet thoughts out loud. The things the rest of us would otherwise think. He says out loud, and Jesus then responds to him. Look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on things of God. Not on things of God, but on things of man. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I thought of some things that might be good for the Lord to tell me. 
like, well done, good and faithful servant, or something like that, right? There's some other things that you might like to hear from him. This is not one of them. Get behind me, Satan. Could there be a more harsh rebuke? I don't think so. Now, Peter had just... See, this is the thing that I, I want your head to get and I want your heart to get. Peter had just had the right answer. He had just given the very best response Jesus could hope for. In other words, he is not at the bottom, he is not at the bottom of the list. He is student number one. He has got it right. And it's so frequent that Christians can say the right things, and then when it comes time for them to feel something or to act, they do it contrary to what Jesus would otherwise do. Get behind me, Satan. We don't know the exact relationship here that Peter and Satan have. It's, a, it's fun to think about, though, really, unless you're Peter. But Jesus, it says, Jesus said to Peter, and then he addressed Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, who is he talking to? I don't exactly know the relationship there. Or let me say it another way. I don't know how the idea got into Peter's brain and out his mouth that Jesus should avoid the cross. But clearly, the idea that there is another way that does not involve suffering and a cross is a satanic idea. And Jesus smelled the sulfur from the pit of hell when Peter said this. And there's a good reason for that. Because Jesus had heard this very thing before. In Matthew chapter 4, you may re remember, right after his baptism, he went up on the mountain, fasted for 40 days, and then Satan came to tempt him. He said, you're probably hungry. Make these stones into bread. He said, you know, let's go to the temple, and if you toss yourself down, your angels will catch you. Then he said, he took him to a high mountain, and he said, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. Okay, this is a, the, really the, um, the trump card of Satan's temptations. It is his strongest temptation. Look at all the nations of the earth. They can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And this Almost these, these very words, Jesus said, Satan be gone. That temptation was a temptation that you get to be king, Jesus, without a cross. And the offer that Satan made Jesus in the wilderness is the same offer that Peter is making here. And Jesus recognized, that's not Peter. That is the temptation of Satan. Now, I said I don't know exactly the relationship between Peter and Satan, but I, but I do know this, and I want, you to, I want you to make sure you know it too. 
right after Peter gives the right answer, he becomes a well-meaning agent of Satan. That ought to humble even the most spiritual among us. This temptation that Jesus identified, he sees again in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? Let this cup pass from me. If there's any other, if it is not necessary, I don't want it. But God affirms again to him, it is necessary. The suffering and the cross and the resurrection are absolutely necessary. So he said, get behind me, Satan. Then he says, you are a hindrance to me. You are a hindrance to me. Now, who, who talked that way, really? I think this lacks some of the color I want you to see in this um, translation as well. Because literally, if you were, if, if you were going to translate it kind of, um, word for word, it would be, you are a stumbling block to me, Peter. So hindrance translates the word stumbling block or stumbling stone. Now the color of this, the color of this you have to see. Because it was just, what, two verses earlier. Peter said, you are, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. And now there's a different kind of rock. Now he's a stumbling stone. Peter went from one to the other just like that. And I want you to recognize that any of us can switch that quickly and be humble about these things and be certain that the cross is necessary. Well, in verse 19, Peter had been given the keys to the kingdom. You have the keys to the kingdom. But, in verse 20, he wasn't allowed to use them. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but don't tell anyone that, you're the Christ, that I'm the Christ. Well, why would Peter be given the keys but told not to use them? And I think the answer is simply, he didn't know how to drive. He didn't really know what to do with those keys. He could say he's the Christ, but until he's clear about what he means by that, the keys aren't going to do any good. And so Jesus wants to make sure that we know what it is that Messiah means. It means he's going to be suffering death and resurrection. And until you're clear on that, don't share some watered-down version don't share some other, you know, personal ambition about Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow him to his suffering to the cross in the empty tomb. Now, again, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just give this rebuke and say, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance, period, walk away, nothing. He tells them why. He gives a reason. I want you to see the reason. There's the ESV starts a new sentence here, but it's really the same sentence. And the ESV starts it with four. 
be more clear if it said because. You're a hindrance to me because. You mind the things of man, not the things of God. The reason you're a hindrance is because you, your mindset, you, you need to mind your head because in your head are the things of man, not the things of God. Your way of looking at the world, your way of thinking about the world, your outlook on life is human. It's not from God. And so Peter needed to mind his head. And by extension, I would say, we need to mind our heads also. Because it's very easy for us to be right in line with Peter in this text, instead of right in line with Jesus in this text. And you say, oh, not me, Pastor. I got this dialed in. I'm always with Jesus. I never default to thinking about things in a human way. Let me just ask you. Are you so set on success without suffering that you would like to advise Jesus about how to run your life? Wouldn't it be nice if you could follow Jesus and have all the good stuff in life too? Yes? The answer is yes. So let's advise Jesus that way, shall we? And we'll be just like Peter. I'm just saying. Going to Jerusalem, suffering and dying is not part of my plan for my life. My plan. Go to college, get married, have a happy family, save enough for a comfortable retirement, and then play golf. There you go. It's precisely at this point, the point that Peter's at right here, where there is a huge divergence between the American dream and the vision that Jesus has. And we have to come to grips with that difference. All the voices in our head, whether they're from culture or from Satan, are telling us, you don't need to suffer. You don't need the cross. Yet Jesus said, hey, we're on our way to Jerusalem to suffer and die and rise again. Which track are you going to be on, really? The reality is, we should expect this divergence because we're told in Isaiah 55 that uh, God doesn't think like we think, right? As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Or more to the point here even. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Jesus, surely, don't let this happen to you. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, what are you, what are you supposed to get from this? 
means several things. You're supposed to get that it is absolutely necessary for there to be suffering and a cross and a resurrection. There is no other way. But you're also to get it in your mind. I'd say once and for all, but it comes and goes. Get it in your mind. Make it part of your mindset that the cross and suffering and dying is part of kingdom life. We've seen this from the beginning of Matthew, haven't we? We've seen this from the Sermon on the Mount. That the way up is down. That the way to live is to die. That the way to have a lot is to give it away. It's a different mindset entirely from what we come to the table with. And it's more clear because we've heard Peter say what we think out loud. And we've heard Jesus rebuke him. And the reason that I wanted to start by encouraging you to mind your head is because you can't expect to live like a kingdom citizen unless you first think like a kingdom citizen. If you don't have a vision of life that accords with Jesus' vision for your life, you're not going to act day to day in a way that's going to get you where Jesus is taking you. And so you have to mind your head before you mind your behavior. And so, let me remind you, though, that just as you can't imagine a cross and you don't want to imagine suffering, you can't imagine grace either. No one else, nowhere else, does anyone offer to accept you to love you, to forgive you apart from what you deserve and in spite of what you deserve other than Jesus. And the interesting thing is that the one is the means to the other, isn't it? The suffering and the cross and the empty tomb, that's the means by which you are accepted and forgiven and loved by Jesus. And so you can't have the one without the other, even though we all think we, that's what we want. And it's, it's really a grave concern of mine that you not only make the right confession, I want everybody to be able to say with conviction that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the right answer. But I also want you to have the priorities of Jesus, the mindset that offers, that, that honors Jesus. I want it worked into your brain and then into your heart that, yes, in fact, the way of Jesus is the way of suffering. It's the way of the cross, and it's also the way of the resurrection. And so it's my hope and prayer that all of us will mind the things of God, not the things of man. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a, 
What a confrontation this is to my own heart. My own heart that would love for it to be easy, would love for there to be a way that Jesus wins without the embarrassment of a cross, without the pain of the suffering. But Father, would you help us to get that? To not just have a confession that's right, but to have an outlook on life that follows Jesus to the cross. And Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we thank you for your word and even for the confrontation that we've seen today. Would you help us to mind the things of God, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.